This is Tremika, and welcome to Deep Dives with Tremika Benjamin, a podcast dedicated to bringing you straight talk about higher education strategies straight from higher education executives. Today, I'm bringing you Dr. Michael Bastin. He's the president of Rockland Community College in New York. Dr. Bastin leads RCC with a very clear goal to build real-world-ready students. And I've asked him to join the show today to share what that means and how he engages faculty, staff, and the external community on redefining how people get educated at RCC, the breaking myths process about who is actually college material, and then bridging the gaps along the path to completion. And before we dive into Dr. Bassin, I want to remind you that if you like today's show, you can learn more at www.deepdivestv.com. Now let's get started. So thank you so much, Dr. Bassin, for joining us today. And before I go too far, do you mind if I call you Mike or do you prefer Dr. or President Bassin? Please call me Mike or whatever you like. <laughs> Just don't call me late for dinner. I- So thank you so much for being on the show. And one of the things that I have heard people talk about, especially on campus here, is just the transformative work you're doing. And it's all around this concept of creating a real world ready college. So talk to me about that. Where did that come from? Well, real rural readiness is extraordinarily important in today's economic climate where it's difficult for people who start an educational experience and don't have a connection to where it ultimately can lead to. Mm -hmm. Because when you're not committed, when you don't have a goal, when you don't have a plan, when you don't have action steps that align with that, there's a likelihood that you can drop out, stop out, or move in lots of different directions that don't allow you to be everything you were meant to be. I am an Uber taker, so I'm an Uber president. I'm one of those presidents that believes that you can get around town just as easily uh, in any other way as an Uber. And so I talk to many Uber drivers as I'm going to and fro. And I always ask them, you know, tell me a little bit about sort of if you know anything about Rockland Community College, if you know anything about community colleges and listen to what they have to say. So just as you get in these Ubers, you're just like, hey, you know anything about RCC? Yep. Okay. (laughs) And it's interesting because so many of them are current RCC students or were RCC students. And when they are no longer our student, I ask them, well, why didn't you finish with us? Why didn't you complete Mm -hmm. with us? And so many of them tell me life got in the way. Things happened. Mm. I, I didn't know who to talk to when I was having a difficulty, things of that nature. And it just sort of put in my mind, how do we make sure that people finish what they start. Right. How do we make sure that people actually live the dreams and live the lives that they deserve? And so for me, looking at every system, every program, every service, every way in which we create experiences that prepare them for the real world is really what I mean by real world ready. And so when when you say prepare them for the real world, whatever it takes to get these students ready, how do you get an institution to think that way? How do you get a, because if I'm not mistaken, how long have you been president at Rockland Community College? Third year as president. So the amount of work that you've done to transform this institution is extremely noteworthy. How do you get an institution? They don't know you. They didn't know what you stood for. They didn't know anything. The first thing about the fact that you wanted to build an institution that was dedicated to preparing students for the real world. How do you get 
an entire institution to change how they're thinking and how they approach decisions that they make on a day-to-day basis, whether it's faculty or staff? Honesty. (laughs) (laughs) I think that all of us have an image of ourselves that is oftentimes not who we really are. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, we may think that we are a much better off than we really are, or we might think that we are uh, much more advanced than we really are. Uh, and what I tried to do when I first got here was to really give people a sense of the state of our circumstances. What do you mean by that? And by that, I mean, I started with a basic principle of home economics. So I said to our faculty and staff, mm-hmm. This is the budget of this college. This is the academic programs that actually are providing a surplus. These are the academic programs that are being subsidized by that surplus. I was not making a judgment as to whether this was good or bad, but I wanted them to understand how we spend the family checkbook at this institution. It's interesting you say that because, you know, Other institutions that we work with, we've heard people say, if you want to know what an institution's values are, you need to look at how they spend their money. That's exactly And you were talking turkey with them. You just shared it. But we didn't stop there. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to take statistics and humanize them. And so I let them understand. I took a cohort of students. I said, this is this 1,435 students that started in the fall of 2013. That student population by the end of that first semester had gone down by this many. And then by that end of that second semester, by this many. And I I showed them over a three-year period what happened to that population of students that came with hopes and dreams and aspirations, who started believing that this was the place that was going to change their lives. For them to see that three years later, that there were students that didn't transfer to another institution, They didn't finish their degree with us. And when we looked at National Clearinghouse data, we were able to understand that those students went nowhere. And this is with faculty. You shared this information with faculty faculty? and staff. I also used the power of the student voice. I conducted hours of interviews with students, and I actually videotaped some of those interviews. I showed them at various meetings that we had. I constantly brought the student's voice within the context of the conversation. I also showed them sort of statistical data of if we don't do anything differently, if we just stay on the current pattern that we are, given all the economic factors, declining enrollments, the low state funding support, all of those elements, I would not be able to sign paychecks as of March 2021. Hmm. So when you put the issue before people in terms of what is at stake, When you are transparent, when you are mindful that you're not trying to tell people they're broken and they need to be fixed, but that you are trying to allow them to understand that there are real benefits from deep collaboration and real benefits from thinking about the full landscape of opportunity, that that together with empowering the people to lead the change, that's what made the difference at our campus. And I think it's really notable because you've given them the data, you've shown them the truth, the reality, and the story of if we continue on the path that we're on, this is where the destination is going to be by the end of 2021. Now. 
making that statement and them understanding what you're saying is one thing. But as president, right below you, you have vice presidents that's responsible for operationalizing this work. And if they don't buy in, that's a struggle. So how did you engage the administration that you have to be able to do this work? The administration that I had. (laughs) (laughs) That you had. Okay, what does that mean? Because as a new president, when you come into an institution, you have to determine relatively quickly, do you have the people around the table that will enable you to enhance the strategic vision and the obligations to the students that you serve available to actually move it forward? Mm. And so in my case, that meant actually needing to make some strategic significant changes to those who would lead our operation and lead us forward. And that was in the vice presidential realm and other realms, but also to recognize the good work and talent of folks that were already on the ground that have never been given pathways to opportunities. So in creating a sort of an approach through what we call guided pathways, Mm -hmm. uh, using working groups, we were able to watch people rise up that had already been here, who were so talented and so dedicated and so committed, but never had pathways to be promoted into positions to move the college forward. Over 70 folks on our campus got into these working groups to really think deeply about how do we change the student experience. And because of that, That goodwill, that ability to bring people into the conversation that were usually bystanders, to move them from bystanders and get them to be participants and and some activists for this work has been incredibly important. And then I know that you have recently received a great deal of recognition for the work that you're doing with your Career Skills Academy. And I know that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a direct correlation to your commitment of building a real ready institution. So talk to me about what is the Career Skills Academy? What is it? And tell me the story about it. When I got here, we had a very anemic continuing education program. It really was much more about sort of leisure time work. It was not really focused on understanding the needs of regional importance in terms of talent development. It was really not structured to get people into opportunities as a gateway to further opportunities in their career. And so I began to listen to people in business and industry to find out what their needs are, to find out what the gaps are. I did a convening with hospital presidents and and I just using healthcare as, a, as one example, with hospital presidents, with the president of the urgent care, with folks in the nursing homes. I brought them all to the table and said to them with their HR directors and presidents, what are the jobs that need to be fulfilled in this industry that may not necessarily require a four-year degree? And in some instances, a two-year degree. But if they got a short-term credential, that could get them on a career ladder. But my caveat was that these jobs had to pay at minimum forty-five dollars to $55,000. And that they had to have jobs that actually existed right now and that there had to be a commitment by these institutions to actually embrace those graduates. And it's interesting that you're, you're bringing this up. What I find with the work that we do 
is that a lot of institutions want to build these workforce infrastructures. They want to redesign their workforce department. And the way they do that is they use their state data, they use national data to determine what the jobs are going to be. But what you're saying is, that's all great. But you got to do the work. You've got to talk to the community people who have the jobs to give in the first place and hold them accountable to the work. Hold them accountable to making sure that they're ready to receive these students as soon as they walk off the stage and give them a very strong competitive pay. Am I right? Absolutely. At the end of the day, I am not into building bridges to nowhere. If (laughs) we are going to build uh, academic bridges to economic opportunities, those opportunities actually have to exist. And so in working with the different organizations that we've been working with, we've been able to place students in good paying jobs. We built a gas pipeline program, and now we have now several graduates that have come through that program that they're all employed, that they all are making a very good viable living. But what we said to those students is that don't stop there. That's a rung on the ladder. Come back now, get your associate's degree. You can get your associate's degree in a STEM field. So you may have started as a gas pipeline operator, but there are so many energy-related opportunities as that grows in this country. We want you now to come and get your associate degree in a STEM-related field. And we're going to help you get into that baccalaureate program so that you can grow in the work that you're doing. So you're building in that almost a re-recruiting model into those programs. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. So there's a, a great deal of talk where um, institutions are super focused on making sure that we, their students can transfer to four-year institutions and they can, they can proceed on. But with the work that you're doing with career skills and preparing these students to be able to be real-world ready and go to work faster, if I'm understanding, your goal is if you want to go to a four-year institution, that's fine, and we're going to help you get there. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to get some money and get paid faster— we're going to help you get there quickly. But how do you how do you delicately balance that, right? Because it's sometimes college um, executives find those to be competing values, right? So how do you navigate that at your executive level? You have to be able to see this work as a ladder and that there are different rungs on the ladder. Mm-hmm. And with each rung comes a different level of economic opportunity, quite frankly. So the higher the educational level and attainment that our students have, Oftentimes, the higher opportunities for economic stability and to move not into family sustaining or supporting wages alone, but we want every person to have access to the middle class and beyond. And that means we want them to be able to own a home. We want them, if they're interested in their own business, we want them to be able to do that. We want them to have the freedom of choice. Mm -hmm. And education puts the choice in your hand. And so from my perspective, when educators say, well, if they don't get an associate degree or a baccalaureate degree, that, you know, they're, they're just wasting their time. Right. What they don't realize is that it's a gateway and there are many paths. I often hear some family members that say, well, you know, my student is not a college material. I completely reject that notion of a young people or anybody not being college material. You might not be available for certain programs, but there should be a program that you are available in college. Whether it is a short-term credential, that's your gateway opportunity, whether it is your associate degree, whether it's your baccalaureate and beyond. The critical thing is to redefine how People get educated, who gets the opportunity to get educated, and what are the pathways to those opportunities? Right. 
if we had a, a president who's listening, who's trying to understand the best, what is the best way to bring their college faculty along in this initiative, to engage their faculty in looking at how do you build an experience within a college that the pedagogy is approached in a way such that you're preparing these students to quickly go to work, have a very healthy living wage, but you're preparing them for life. You're not preparing them to transfer to a four-year institution. You're preparing them to be ready to go to work so that they don't immediately say, I'm not going to finish and I'm going to go, you know, drive an Uber. How do you, not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know what I mean. How do you change that mindset in a person who's running a class with curriculum that they're comfortable with? The question becomes more, can we afford to continue in the ways in which we are approaching our educational experience? And then we ask them, are you comfortable with X percentage of your students starting and not finishing? Are you comfortable with X percentage of your students who are now replying to our alumni surveys or those that we're talking to who exited before they graduated? And their commentary about how they felt that they were not prepared for the next step. Are you comfortable with that? Mm. I think you have to ask the fundamental questions about the changing nature of work and the changing landscape and to say that our current approach is getting our current results. So if we want better results, then we probably have to take (laughs) different approaches. Right. But then the institution as well has to be prepared to do the professional development support for faculty that enables them to make the transitions that are necessary. And the institution has to be committed, as we are, to applied learning opportunities that allow our students to really have hands-on experience that give them a competitive advantage so that they can move into the world of work that is changing and then to be a change and thought leader in that change. I'm not preparing our folks just to learn how to make a living. I'm preparing them to make a life and to contribute to the lives of others. Wow. And to that point, to the point of you being able to provide an infrastructure for people to have a life of all types, right? You've recently been a recipient of a major federal grant. Is that correct? Can Absolutely. you tell us a little bit about that? We just got awarded a $3 million grant, which is the largest grant in the history of our college for our Title V work around moving Hispanic-serving institutions forward. We are a Hispanic-serving institution. 31% of our students are, are Hispanic students. And what we decided to do with the, the funds we got from the federal government was to really build out an infrastructure of support. You know, the goal for us is really to get folks to understand that if you provide support for students, if you provide clarity for students, Mm -hmm. if you engage in the appropriate exploration of opportunities for students, you challenge the opportunity caste system that exists in this country. And that's what I want my faculty and my staff to see themselves as, as hope merchants, uh, to see themselves as those responsible for tearing down the opportunity caste system in this country. Wow. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Bassin, for coming on the show today. It has been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you on the circuit. Thank you so much, and good to see you and the great work you're doing. Thank you. Well, that's it. 
hope you enjoyed today's show. You can find more episodes at www.deepdivestv.com or you can subscribe through your favorite podcast subscription service. Until next time, thanks for listening.